Welcome to the Activist Insight Podcast, Beyond the Boardroom, a supplement to our monthly podcast, which takes you through the top shareholder activism stories as told by Activist Insight Monthly. Here we discuss shareholder activism with some of the industry's top experts. I'm Ilana DeRay, a financial reporter with Activist Insight, and today we are chatting with Andrew Friedman, a partner and co-chair of Olshin Frumulowski's Activist and Equity Investment Group. As a partner at the number one ranked law firm in Activist Insight's intermediary league table, Andy is one of the top U.S. attorneys practicing in the area of shareholder activism. He advises some of the nation's most prolific activist investors, such as Starboard Value and Elliott Management. Today, Andy talks to us about some of the burning legal controversies in activism, including nomination deadlines, withhold campaigns, and the universal proxy. Hi, Andy. Welcome to the show. Hi there. Thanks for having me on. How have advanced notice requirements changed in recent years? Well, like I go back my experience about 15 years that I've been working with investors and mostly activist investors to deliver shareholder nominations. I actually vividly remember the first nomination letter that I delivered to a, a regional trucking company called SCS Transportation. And actually on a, a Sunday, joined the client in the office to get the nomination delivered on a timely manner by by that following Monday. And what I recall from that first instance is very baseline nomination requirements that had all the typical information you would expect to see in the the advance notice bylaw requirements, such as information pertaining to the nominees and their biographical information, and then certain information relating to the shareholder making the nomination, including the identity that they're a shareholder of record and a description of their interests in, in the company and the company's securities. Back then, you really never were too deeply concerned that the nomination notice would be rejected or held over the nominating shareholder's head on any kind of frivolous technicalities or or anything of the like. In the time since that 15 years ago first nomination letter, I've worked on close to 500 nominations. So I've seen wholesale change in how this emerging defense bar and and company advisors have changed the scope of the advance notice requirements and doing so in a manner that goes far beyond what the the purpose or rationale for having such advance notice requirements is in the first place. So I think maybe it bears taking a step back here and just to clarify the idea behind shareholder nominations and notice requirements in the first place. And they are the very foundation upon which corporate democracy and shareholder democracy exists. It's setting the wheels in motion for a contested election of directors, whereby shareholders have a choice at that upcoming annual meeting as to who they feel is best fit and most qualified to serve their interests on the board of directors. What we've unfortunately seen and then harking back to that first nomination notice delivered at SES Transportation, which was a fairly simple five-page nomination notice, the nomination notices that are being delivered these days can range up to 500 pages, sometimes even more. And it's because of how far the company's advisors are are taking the advance notice requirements and what they're requiring to be included both in the form of questionnaires and otherwise, and mostly, unfortunately, in a manner that 
is designed to be able to reject or have such broadly drafted requirements in the notice that the the company can thereafter either allege deficiencies in the notice or or even worse like we've seen in recent cases involving Ashford Hospitality Prime and Home Street in recent years where the company goes so far as rejecting the shareholders nominations on grounds of and typically frivolous grounds involving various technicalities and what they're doing they're eroding the very premise of shareholder democracy in not only casting such broad requirements and going so past the realm of what is reasonable for a shareholder and its nominees to disclose in a nomination notice that it's it's really unfortunate that they're trying to create this entrenchment trap whereby the the board and its advisors can sit back, review a nomination notice, and determine on what frivolous grounds they can either hold that nomination over the head of the, the nominating shareholder or just seek to outright reject it. Shareholders deserve to have choice at annual meetings. If the incumbents can sit by and decide to reject a shareholder's nomination, really there is there is no truer form of entrenchment or shareholder disenfranchisement than that. So you mentioned these egregious nomination questionnaires. I'm curious, are the companies fishing for information? And what sort of information would they be fishing for? They're not really even fishing for information. They're trying to create traps. They're trying to have questionnaires that are couched with with items and questions that are couched so broadly that it's near impossible to fully comply with certain of these questionnaires. And what I would challenge both the corporate governance world and and SEC and others and state lawmakers who regulate in, in this area is that if there are director candidates who have served on public company boards, whose bios and experience and skill sets are there in the public domain, then apart from the shareholder providing certain of the information that's required of it, and that that's pertinent without going um, so far as to require things that we're seeing, such as employment agreements and any compensation arrangements between the nominating shareholder, the activist investor in most cases, and, and its nominees, mindful of the fact that in many cases, a nominee is a direct representative, an employer or partner of that activist investor nominating shareholder. They're seeking out things that are not to fish for information that they can use in the course of a proxy contest. What these defense advisors and, and public companies that they're advising are, are in fact doing is putting forth requirements that they know no nominating shareholder is going to be willing to divulge. And then when we ask the advisor or or the general counsel, whoever it may be, uh, in any given case to agree to pair back or to agree to an NDA to cover certain of these onerous requirements, they, they don't agree. Now, I think some companies would argue that these lengthy advance notice requirements are actually helping engagement with shareholders. What's your response to that? It's hard for me to see how this kind of new wave of advance notice requirements is is doing anything to further engagement between the stockholder and the company. If anything, they're being used in a manner and in a nefarious manner to shift the leverage in discussions and in behind the scenes engagement between activist investors in the company by either alleging deficiencies with the nomination notice. And all of a sudden, if you're the nominating shareholder and the company sent letter alleging certain deficiencies in the notice and the nomination notice, and you responded saying that you don't believe there are any deficiencies, but in any event here, the, the following should uh, satisfy and cure whatever deficiencies you're alleging, that the, the company, when it continues 
to hold a and question whether there's a, a legitimate nomination. They're trying to shift the leverage. So in settlement discussions, they could say, "Well, we're we would take you to court. We don't even believe your nomination is valid." Uh, and they and they try to use that to uh, maybe lessen what it is that the the activist may be seeking in in any settlement agreement. But maybe what your question was also getting to are, and I think you had mentioned lengthy lengthy standstill periods. We are seeing the the time period by which the shareholder has to deliver its nomination coming now, you know, anywhere four, five, or six months ahead of the the company's annual meeting. And look, I don't think that's helpful for fostering engagement between the investor and and the company because, first of all, if the in- investor is forced to nominate that early, then it it changes the the dynamic and the, the complexion of of those discussions. And if the, it's a 13D filer, they've had to publicize those nominations, um, whereby, uh, you know, under the 13D 5% threshold, uh, the nominating shareholder can keep the nominations private. And then you can still have the dialogue that you would, you know, typically have uh, vis-a-vis the nominating shareholder and the board and, and their respective advisors. But I just don't think uh, these these advanced notice requirements, egregious nomination questionnaires, they're not doing anyone any service. And I think that what they show in a, in a lot of respects is a company and a board that's not, that can't stand on its own merits. If they, if they thought they could win an election on the merits, then let the shareholders have choice. Don't erode the corporate democracy and the shareholder franchise on frivolous grounds and, and, and silly technicalities. That I think that we're going to see, and I, I hope and I think ISS is beginning to focus on these issues as our other proxy advisory firms, and they're taking a close look at, at Home Street and other examples. And there was, I should should add, in the case of Ashford Hospitality Prime, Maryland Corporation and Maryland, and a REIT, but Maryland is notorious for being the most shareholder unfriendly of all jurisdictions, but that uh, ISS did issue a withhold recommendation on the full board at Ashford Hospitality Prime for its antics in seeking to and um, ultimately uh, rejecting the nominations of, of the shareholder in that case two years ago. Post-Xerox, how many activists will actually get a chance to reopen closed nomination deadlines? Look, the Xerox case, it's one that we, we followed closely. It, it's an important decision, but it's narrow in terms of a shareholder going forward being able to avail itself of of the holding there. And what I'm getting at is there are limited circumstances in which a nomination window would would reopen uh, between when the deadline closed and an annual meeting. But I, I do think, and just for for everyone's benefit, it uh, the the Xerox case was was known for the fact that hey, if a company is going to either intentionally or unintentionally have a very serious and material development that exists following a nomination deadline, but is of such import that had the shareholder been aware of that information, that development, that activity prior to the nomination deadline, it would have been a key consideration and would have nominated if it had the opportunity. Then the the court held, hey, in those circumstances, it's it's only fair for a nomination deadline to reopen and allow shareholders to field director candidates um, for and, and contest uh, incumbent directors at the upcoming annual meeting because you don't get a bite at the apple, as we know, all that often um, in in the way that corporate democracy works. And it's some companies where you can't act by written consent and you can't call a special meeting or maybe you can't otherwise seek to remove or replace directors or, or have any other ability to affect change on the board, the annual meeting is the only bite at the apple. And so I think courts were in that handing down that ruling. The Delaware court was well aware of that fact. I do think 
Xerox will rear its head again, but it's not going to be kind of a once a year, twice a year type type occurrence in my view. And there's other, as we've discussed as well, there's the, the withhold fallback option. It's not ideal. It's kind of a half-baked proxy campaign approach to seek to withhold directors as opposed to electing your own slate. But nevertheless, it is an avenue for shareholders to have a referendum on the board and to have their voices heard. Are activists dead in the water if they're forced to consent to appear on a company's universal proxy card? Not dead in the water, necessarily. But look, I'm glad you raised that too, because it's just another in the growing list of examples of ways that defense advisors and public companies are tilting the playing field and making unfair requirements of the shareholder when those similar requirements or reciprocal requirements don't apply to the company. So we're seeing far too often these days in the nomination requirements, either in the bylaws or part of as a, a questionnaire or otherwise, the company purport to require that the shareholders, director candidates are somehow consenting to serve or forcing them to consent to be included in the company's proxy and the company's proxy card. At first, it was likely just a slip up. Companies were taking the director questionnaires that they were already using for their own directors. And of course, an incumbent or a continuing director or a new director sourced by the company is going to have no issue consenting to be included in a, in a company's proxy. That's that's par for the course. That's what they, they should be consenting to. The situation's different in a contest where a, not, where a shareholder is, is nominating the candidate. I think this is an important thing. I'm, I'm going to go sidebar here real quick. The nominating shareholder, when it's availing itself of the right to submit and put notice forth of a slate of director candidates, it's not merely recommending directors for the company's nomination committee, corporate governance committee to consider. That's a different process, and that's a different mechanic. What the shareholder is doing when it submits a slate of director candidates in accordance with a company's advance notice requirements is saying, I intend to run these candidates on my own proxy and proxy card to contest the incumbent directors who are up for election at the company's annual meeting of directors. So again, when you think about it in that regard, I think far too often is the case that Companies somehow consider that it's incumbent upon them to consider and do good. We're not asking companies. It's great if the companies want to consider and want to agree absent a settlement agreement or otherwise to put candidates of the, the activist shareholders choosing on the, on the company's proxy, then th- that could be a welcome development. The problem is they're not doing it with that in mind. They're doing it to shift the dynamics in a proxy contest. Now, this isn't about a universal ballot discussion. The problem is until there's a unified approach to universal ballots that's codified and that's been laid down by SEC rule or otherwise and regulations, then it's too much of a free-for-all in how the universal ballot's employed. And to leave it to the nominating shareholder and its advisors and the company and its advisors to figure out is, can it be done? Yes, but it hasn't been done to date in the U.S. in a proxy contest. There's been instances where we've come close, but it's wholly unfair for the company to seize the advantage of being able to have a unilateral universal ballot, which is essentially what they're asking for or requiring when they're saying that the the shareholders' nominees have to consent to be on the company's proxy, whereby the nominating shareholder isn't getting that ability to use a universal ballot in those instances itself. How do activists take the pulse of shareholders when deciding whether or not to settle? Are they allowed to straight up ask index funds what they want? There's some leeway. It depends where in the timeline of things the process is. Has the shareholder nominated yet? Has it filed its proxy materials? Is it a 13D filer where you may have some group issues that you want to need to navigate or, or maneuver around? And then there's some activists who, yes, you take 
the polls, you're always kind of feeling out the shareholder base and you want to know uh, where people stand on, on the need for change without necessarily getting into the specific kind of nuts and bolts of, hey, would you support these two or not these two of our candidates? In the throes of a proxy contest, you may be having those discussions. Early on, you want to understand what what is your leverage in, in discussions and in settlement negotiations? Do we have support if push comes to shove to if we were to reject a proposal made made by the company for a certain level of board representation, but represent a level that we don't or our activist client doesn't feel substantiates the the circumstances, it matters then what the shareholder base thinks. And to be able to say, you know what, you're offering us two seats. We think three or four seats is what is the type of change or level of change that's warranted or required here. And in fact, you know, go speak to your shareholders, many of whom we've spoken with, who believe, as do we, that this this level of change is needed at the board. So you have those discussions. Uh, some shareholders and, and their counsel are, you know, how you go about having those discussions varies. But those, yeah, those are certainly communications that are had and, and are important to in terms of informing uh, both sides what, what their relative leverage is and, and how that settlement will ultimately look. Now, moving away from the nomination topic, I know that some advisors like to represent issuers and activists because it gives them perspectives into both sides' wants and needs. I also know that you are a staunch believer in only representing the one side. Can you please tell us a little bit about that philosophy? This is a, a very important topic to me. And it's not just because we're, we're activist side only and we're, we won't represent on the company side. It's that there is a philosophical divide. In my view, you are doing an injustice if you are a legal advisor that on the one hand advises activist investors and on the other hand is advising public companies in in a proxy fight. And I'll, I'll give you a few examples why. And it goes beyond any myopic view by certain of these advisors who do take this approach. And there are a few. And I've come across them and you know, I'm not going to pull any punches uh, during the course of this of of this podcast, but what I will tell you is the, their myopic view would be, look, our activist client isn't involved in this company. They're not in this name. We don't have a quote unquote conflict. So we see no issue with advising on the public company side and, and advising the company in a defensive manner. That fails to take into account the nature of how dynamic shareholder activism is and how diametrically opposed activist investors are on the one hand and public company boards are on the other in the context of of a proxy fight. And the types of strategies that are employed by and advised by, ushered in by defense counsel makes it such that even if their activist client isn't on the other side of that particular proxy contest, the advice they're giving, whether it be to allege an undisclosed 13D group, whether it be to put in some ridiculously onerous director uh, questionnaires or advance notice requirements, that is doing a grave disservice to their activist clients. Attorneys who are advising on, on both sides like that are putting their clients at risk because others in the space see see what the trends are and how defense uh, the defense side is advising and, and what they're doing. And that becomes a part of sort of the, the, the public domain of what's trending and how defense advisors are responding to activists. And that's a problem. But I think it's I think there's ethical issues there. Thanks so much, Andy, for having this frank conversation with us. Thanks for having me. Uh, you'll probably see some uh, nomination issues rearing their head in coming days and weeks, as well as I can promise you and assure you uh, numerous nomination notices as well. Looking forward. <laughs> All right, take care, Alana. Thank Thanks. You.
That was Andrew Friedman, a partner at Olshan Frumulowski. That's it for this episode of the Activist Insight Podcast, Beyond the Boardroom. If you would like to join us on a future episode, or if you have any comments or questions, please email press at activistinsight.com. Please do rate and review the podcast on whichever platform you are using to help others access our reporting. I'm Ilana DeRay. Thanks for listening.